Good morning, folks. Great to see you uh, this morning. And um, it isn't it a wonderful thing to, to know that this morning Hope Church are meeting for the first time. So, folks, please, can I encourage you to pray for George and for Kate and for Henry and the whole team as they embark on reaching the people of Kensington through the ministry of Hope Church. It is a joy, folks, to be one of the pastors of Cornerstone and over the last 11 years to be able to have seen people grow and, and be trained up and be sent out to plant churches in different parts of Mesa. And our hope and our prayer is that continues. Folks, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 11. And whilst you go there, I'm just going to pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you so much that this is your living word that we have in our hands this morning. And we just ask and we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. And Father, as we read about the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you, are, you would cause us to admire him, to worship him. And Father, to have lives that imitate him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is it that you admire? Who's the person or, or the people, possibly from your family, your workplace, possibly a sports star or a musician or a successful business person? Who is the person or the persons that you admire? Now, we often admire people who are engaged in the things that we like like sport or, or, or music, or we often admire people who do the same things that we do, possibly in the context of our, our work. And we also admire people who have the same outlook on life as us, maybe those who are a bit older, those who've walked a few miles than us. We, we look and we see how they make sense of the world from their perspective, which is the same as ours, and we admire them. When I was a kid growing up, I loved sport, absolutely loved it. My two favourite sports were football, standard for being a Scouse lad, and tennis. So growing up as a kid playing football, I used to admire footballers, of course. I'd watch them and I'd see what they did and I had all sorts of different heroes. I used to love Paul Gascoigne and the way he used to dribble with the ball, but my, one of my biggest heroes growing up was a, a, a man called Jan Mulby who played for Liverpool. Now, Jan Moby was a big guy, a little bit like myself, but he could pass a ball like no one I'd ever seen. And I'll be honest with you, like no one I've ever seen since. So I wanted to model my game on Jan Moby. One, because he wasn't that quick, and it meant that, but he was still a great player. And I thought, well, I'm not that quick. So if I model my game, if I imitate him, I'll be like him. I'll be able to play like him. I admired Jan Moby, therefore I imitated him. My other sport that I loved was tennis, and because I'm a ginger, a ginger, as a young lad, people used to call me Boris Becker, and I used to love Boris Becker, and I used to watch how he serve and how he'd hit his forehand and his backhand, and I had to want to imitate it because I admired him as a player, and he used to love to volley, come to net, and he'd dive all over the court, and even now, at the age of 42, I still think uh, I, I, um, I've got a bit of Boris Becker in me because I'm diving around, getting injured all the time, Trying to, trying to make volleys that a 42-year-old man should not be making. But I admired Boris Becker, therefore I imitated him. At the age of 19, I became a police officer, and one of my tutor constables, which is the guy that would show me round and, and show me how to do the job in the, in the first initial months of being a policeman, 
I really admired. I admired him as a police officer, the way he used to engage with people, the way he 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 used to speak with um, with those that he was arresting, the way that he used to investigate crime. And I found, as I look back now, I found that I I I, I even started to imitate how he functioned as a police officer. I, I wore my uniform like he wore his uniform. I, I had the same tools that he would use, that I would use my radio in the same way. I would engage with people in a similar way. Why? Because I admired him. I admired how he functioned, and therefore I began to imitate. Folks, there is an instinct in the midst of admiration that leads us to imitate. See, who we admire can trigger for us a desire to imitate them. And like I said before, this is often the case when we share the same outlook as that person that we admire. So we seek to imitate them and how they function, and we also seek to imitate their mindset regarding how they make sense of life or how they make sense of a task. And today we are at a point in this letter to the church in Philippi where the Apostle Paul is directing the church to the central story. A central story that has the central person of all of history right in the middle of it. And in directing them, what he is saying is, your mindset needs to be the same as this person. Your central outlook needs to be the same as this person. If you recall um, a few weeks ago from my first sermon in this series, I highlighted that Paul's intention was to show how his story and the stories of others are defined by the story of the Lord Jesus. And not only are our stories defined by his story, that actually our stories are to be a reflection of the story of Jesus. We, we are to be ambassadors for Jesus. We are to live in such a way that actually tells the world we follow Jesus. Now we've seen over the past couple of weeks that Paul, despite being in prison, was filled with joy. He was filled with joy because, because even in the midst of his own sufferings and what he was experiencing was actually making a way for the gospel to advance. More people were hearing about Jesus and more people were becoming Christians. We've also seen that his outlook on life is that death for him, if that comes for him, actually is a good thing because if he dies, he's going to be with Jesus. But also his outlook on life is such that if he lives, that also will be great because he can live for Jesus. And in living for Jesus, that is a benefit to others, specifically in this case, the church in Philippi. And last week we saw this call that Paul gives to the church to live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus, worthy of the good news of Jesus, to live lives of unity and to live lives of selflessness. Unity in that a call to, to be firm and stand together in one spirit, with one mind, with the same love, which is lived out in not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but counting others more significant than yourselves and looking to the interests of others. There is this call, live out your life in a manner worthy of the gospel 
of Jesus. See, I can imagine as this letter was being read out to the church, I could imagine people saying, okay, cool, I, I, I see that. We've got to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay, what does that look like? What, what does that look like? And maybe that's you this morning. As we, maybe that was you last week as we're thinking about this and processing this in, in our gospel communities. What does it actually look like for us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? We may have questions like, like, I know as a Christian my life should be lived in this manner, but what does that look like? Is it about attending GC? Is it about giving? Is it about reading my Bible? Is it about standing for truth in the midst of this very confused culture? And the answer, folks, is yes. They are all part of that. But Paul, then, after calling them to live a life worthy of the gospel, he then shows them what that looks like by drawing their attention to the mindset that is needed to live that life. See, living a life worthy of the gospel starts with having the same mindset as Christ. That's why he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or can be translated which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset, the same attitude that Jesus has, that he had during his ministry, that he has now. And what is that, verse 8? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Folks, what Paul is drawing the, the church in Philippi's attention to, and what we have in front of us today, is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. I actually think there's probably not many Bible verses that I have quoted in my many years of preaching sermons, apart from these verses in Philippians 2. Now this passage is amazing, yes, because of its theological and doctrinal richness. As Paul sings, he proclaims the wonder of Jesus becoming man, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, and dying in our place and rising and being exalted as the Lord of all that leads to an admiration of, of the Lord as our Savior and as our King. But it's not only amazing because the theological and doctrinal significance, it is also has ethical significance in that what we have in front of us is the greatest example of what it means, what it looks like to live lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. See, this is what, and Jesus is, who we are to imitate if our outlook of life is the gospel. See, Paul's intention here is to remind the church in Philippi of the humility of Jesus in salvation that leads to our admiration of him that then leads to our imitation of him. We are to see who Jesus is, the wonder of what he's done, and admire him. And then our lives should follow suit in imitating him. Folks, what we have in front of us is a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms. But it is also the gospel of Jesus Christ that helps us make sense. 
as we live in this world. So what we see here is a call to have the same mindset of Christ, verse 5. He's like, look, this is what it looks like. I want you to have the same attitude, the same mindset as Jesus, verse 5. And that attitude was, verse 8, that he humbled himself. Now, this is important. We could read through this, and I guess many of us will and have, with an individual mindset, an individual perspective. One of the, 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 the things that I think we lose out on so much is that we often read the Bible as an individual rather receiving the Bible as a people. Let us not forget that Paul is writing to a people, a writing to the church. And our mindset could be such, if we forget that, that this is what Jesus did for me, and this is how I need to live. Now, folks, that is true. However, the context of where this is placed in this letter is sandwiched between Paul's call for unity, being of one mind, one spirit, etc., and also in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which again is about living in unity. Just We'll look at this next week, but just glance your eyes over. What does he say in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you see that? We see that this wonderful theological and ethical, ethically significant um, description of the gospel sits right in the middle of Paul calling a people to be united and Paul calling a people to do things without grumbling and dispute. Folks, it is so important as we read this and we look at this today that we do approach it as those who have been saved by grace and have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but also those who are part of a people. And primarily, that's how we should approach this. Because if the call is to have a mindset like Christ who humbled himself, that mindset, that imitation has an effect on others. It has an effect on others. So as we consider, and as we respond to this, I want us to do that with the mindset of being part of a people, being part of a church. So the first thing I want us to do is I want us to get to a point where we are, we admire, admiration. So as we look at this, I want us to come to a point of getting there again, if we've lost that, to be people who admire the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings an admiration and we see that in his humility and we see that in his exaltation. So first, we see Jesus' humility. We see there, straight away, that Jesus, in his humility, we see three things. Number one, he laid aside. Number two, he took on. And number three, he took up. Number one, he laid aside. Verse six, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another way of saying that is, who, existing in the form of God. See, the Apostle Paul here, verse 5, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. So he goes on to explain, he goes on to show them, okay, what that actually looks like. What does this attitude of humility actually look like? actually look like and he starts with showing who Jesus is and we see two things we see that Je we see the pre-existence of Jesus before his birth in Bethlehem and we see his divine nature see the pre-existence as God Jesus has been God for all eternity 
And the divine nature is that he, is ha he has the essential attribute of being God. So it says there, who existing in the form of God. So he has existed as God for all eternity because God, God is eternal. But he existed in the form of God. Now the Greek word form is morphe. Now folks, this doesn't speak of external appearances. When I was a kid, I, I literally looked like a young Boris Becker, a little bit plumper, but I looked a little bit like Boris Becker. But I, but, so I looked like him, I tried to imitate him, but I, I didn't live in the form of, of him. Externally, there were some appearances. Outwardly, there were some similarities. But essentially, I did not have the attributes of Boris Becker. However, the Lord Jesus here has the essential attributes of being God, Morphe. He, he existed for all eternity in the form, having the essential attributes of God, of being God. So Paul is saying, look at this example. Here is Jesus, who is and always has been fully God. Look, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See that? So Paul's saying, have the mindset of Jesus. Jesus, who has always been God at the deepest root in all its form. He's God. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See that verse 6. Paul is saying, Jesus, who is and was fully God, didn't use that position for his own advantage. That's what it means. In fact, he used it not for grounds for getting, but for grounds for giving. See, here's, the, here's Jesus, who is God, does not use his position of God to get, but actually uses position to give. See, that rather than grasping verse 7, what does he do? He empties himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul is saying, look at this humility. Jesus, who is fully God and has been for all eternity, did not use that for his own advantage, but rather laid aside, emptied himself, opened up his hands, that means he came empty-handed. And he lays aside his heavenly glory and his sovereign rights and prerogatives. He lays aside his entitlements in order to become a servant, to become a slave. See, folks, in Roman times, to be a servant, to be a slave, meant not having basic rights. What we see here is that the Lord Jesus gave up his heavenly rights to serve, to serve. He is God in all his fullness, and he does not consider that something to use for his own advantage, but no, empties himself, actually comes empty-handed and becomes a servant. Actually lays aside entitlement to serve others. See, folks, what I want us to really understand here, that when it says that he empties himself, at no point does Jesus stop being God in any form whatsoever. He is fully God. And in being fully God, the Lord Jesus, in his humility, lays aside. He does not take 
um, advantage of the position that he has. He comes empty-handed. So it's not that he, for a period, stops being some form of God. No, he is always God, and he is, as we will see, fully man. And he lays that entitlement down in order to become a servant. Folks, it was the Lord Jesus that said in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I'm reminded from John 13, when the Lord Jesus kneels down with a bowl of water and washes his disciples' feet whilst they are arguing about who should have the most prominent position in the kingdom of God. Folks, imagine if we took this posture in the church. Imagine if each person sought not to be elevated to a higher position, but sought to humbly serve others as Jesus did. Imagine what that would do. Imagine if we were willing to lay aside any entitlement that we think that we have in order to serve other people. Folks, we see Jesus' humility in that number one, he laid aside. Folks, we see Jesus' humility, number two, in that he took on, verses seven to eight. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just lay aside his sovereign glory, lay aside his majesty. He didn't only just come empty-handed. He didn't only just come to serve. He actually humbled himself by taking voluntarily, emptying himself of his heavenly glory and his rights and becomes a man, becomes what he was not. He becomes a human. He becomes what he has created. He was born in the likeness of man found in human form. See, Jesus, who is fully God, humbles himself and becomes fully human in every way, yet, folks, without sin, the Bible tells us. And it's right for us to see that Jesus, being fully human, understands what it is to live in the brokenness of this world, but it is right for us to also see that he did not sin. It's interesting here, folks, as you look at this, that he, what, he, he, he takes the form of, of a human, verse 8, found in a human form, but being born in the likeness of men. See, it's right for us to see that Jesus was fully human, but he did not sin, so therefore there was something about Jesus which was different. We read it in the Gospels often. There was a question, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? When I was a kid, we used to listen to a Christian artist called Michael Card, and he sung a song about the Lord Jesus, and it was called The Nazarene, and there was a line in it, and it said this, that Jesus was just like any other man. He was, un sorry, Jesus was unlike any other man, but yet so much like me. There was something about the way that Jesus was, there was something about the way he lived, there was something about the way that he engaged that he was in the form of man fully human but what kind of man is this see it's interesting not only does he humble himself to become a human he humbles himself in the midst of poverty and obscurity as a human see the lord jesus was born into poverty 
The Lord Jesus grows up in a forgotten town, a disregarded town, a disrespected town. He lives as a tradesman for 30 years in obscurity. And during his ministry, folks, he had no home. And he was marked out for being one who loved the unlovable, who spent time with the sinner and the outcast. And he saved others rather than being saved. See, the Lord Jesus humbled himself in that he took on flesh. He became what he had created, humanity. He became, folks, in his humility, the God of all, who is sovereign all, creator of all, sustainer of all. He became reliant on his mother, his father, his friends. He became reliant on the Holy Spirit and he lived a normal life and he loved and he cared for others folks what i want us to understand is is that humility isn't passivity let's not mistake that humility is is the is the the quietest person in the room no humility isn't weakness either humility is actively laying aside and taking on for the sake of others what we see is the lord jesus actively lays aside his entitlement his prerogative his position and takes on flesh in order to save humanity, in order to love humanity for the sake of others. There's nothing passive about that. It is bridled strength in the midst of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And we see here the attitude of Jesus lived out in his incarnation that was a life of humanity that led to a death marked by humility. See, we, saw, we see number two, Jesus' humility in that he took on. And number three, we see his humility in that he took up, verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did Jesus deserve to die? Answer, no. But please don't make the mistake of thinking that in his death, Jesus was humbled by others. It wasn't Judas, it wasn't Herod, it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't the Jewish leaders or the Roman soldiers that humbled Jesus. No, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. Folks, throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes it very clear that his reason for coming was to give his life. The cross of Jesus and his humility is not for us, folks, to be moved so we feel sorry for Jesus and we pity Jesus. No, Jesus emptied himself. The eternal life-giving God becomes what he wasn't and he humbles himself even unto death. It is Jesus who is over us who dies in our place, he is not to be pitied in the midst of this humility and this sacrifice and this love. No, he is to be admired and he is to be worshipped. But this humility continues, not just to death, but he takes up death he takes up death. He takes up our death because he takes up our sin. 
Folks, can we see that? It's not that just Jesus humbles himself to die. No, Jesus humbles himself in that he takes our sin and our rejection upon himself. The perfect son of God becomes sin and he is punished by God and he pays the wages of those sins in that he dies. He takes on our death because he takes on our sin and he dies an embarrassing and brutal public death between two common criminals. Folks, he humbled himself even to death and even to death on a cross. Folks, let's not miss this. The weight and the significance in that time of Jesus being crucified. See, crucifixion was there for, for, for those who were found guilty of things who were not Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, you were, were not to die by way of crucifixion. That would not happen for you. So Jesus dies on a cross as somebody who is outside of the empire of the world at that time. But if you were a Jew and you somebody, saw somebody being crucified, your assumption would be that they were cursed. Because to die on a cross was to be cursed. See, the Lord Jesus died the death that was kept for those excluded from the most powerful empire on earth, and he died a death in a way that public, publicly declared that he was cursed. Folks, let's just pause for a minute. Jesus, in his humility, laid aside, took on, and took up. And what we see here is the reversal of human nature. What we see here is the reversal of, of a selfish nature. What we see here is the reversal of original sin. What we see here is a reversal of the curse that came about because of Adam's sin in Genesis 1 verse 3. Let me just walk you through the comparison of Adam and what we have just read and considered regarding Jesus. See, Adam, human, was made in the image of God. Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Adam wanted to be like God, whereas Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a man. Adam was discontent being God's servant, whereas Jesus assumed the form of a servant. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience, whereas Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam passively succumbed to temptation, whereas Jesus actively overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Adam brought the curse of the world, whereas Jesus took the curse of the world and for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced, whereas Jesus was and is exalted by God the Father. Look at this humility, folks. He did not deserve to die, but he became sin and died a very public death whilst the judgment of God's wrath for sin was laid on him absorbed by him, paid by him for the interest of others. Those others being those who by nature are just like Adam. Folks, please see this. Jesus considered others. 
Jesus considered us more than himself. Through his humble obedience and service, service, the curse of God was reversed. Jesus, in his humility, laid aside. He took on flesh and he took up what we deserved. Jesus did not consider himself. He considered the interest of others. And because of that, folks, because of that, we are forgiven. Because of that, we can be saved. And because of that, the Lord Jesus is highly lifted up and our humble King is exalted and will be confessed by everyone as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see that, number two, Jesus' exaltation, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, therefore, therefore, It's because of Christ's humility God the Father has exalted him. Because Jesus made himself low, the Father has raised him to be high. And he has given him a name that is above every name. It's because of Jesus' obedience, humility, he has been given another name. Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God, is now Lord of God of all so the word lord is is the greek word that is used in the greek translation of the old testament that they use uh, to translate the hebrew word yahweh the the name of god and folks let us get this let us get the weightiness of the exaltation of the lord jesus is that in isaiah 42 verse 8 god says this i am yahweh i am the lord That is my name, my glory I give to no other. But the Lord Jesus, in his humility, and because of his obedience, and because of his sacrifice, and because of his mercy, and because of his grace, and because of his love, and because he conquers sin and death and the grave, he is highly exalted, and he has been given a name that is above every name. He is above all, he is over all, he is the Lord of all things. And one day, every person will bow to the name of Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord over all. Folks, this was so significant for the Christians in Philippi because as far as the culture was concerned, the Lord was Caesar. And folks, this is so significant for us in our culture because as far as we're concerned in our culture, the Lord is self. When the Lord Jesus, who gave of himself, who humbled himself for the sake of others has been exalted and given the name that is above every name. And one day, everyone will confess that name. And one day, everybody will bow bow before that name. There will be some who will do it with great joy and great humility. And there will be those who will do that with great despair and great anguish because they will not bow to him as their saviour, but but they will bow to him as their judge. Which one will you be? Which one will you be? And folks, do you even also see, even in the midst of Jesus' exaltation, we see the humility of Jesus? Because it tells us there that at the, uh, verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Even in his exaltation, it is for the glory of his Father. Folks, as Christians, we confess him as Lord now. I pray that we do. But I also pray that we look forward to the day when the whole world will join us in admiration as our high and humble King is exalted and glorified before all. See, folks, part of this importance for the church in Philippi and for us as Christians is because the call to live lives worthy of the gospel is a call to recognize that time and history is not like a treadmill. It's not just going nowhere. But rather, time and history is going somewhere. And that somewhere is the glorification of the high and humble King, Jesus Christ. Where he will be praised. Where he will be bowed to. Where every lip will confess that he is the Lord of all. Folks, that is where history is heading. That's where our lives are heading. That's where our eternity is heading. The issue is, will you bow and confess him as somebody who has great joy because you see your saviour? Or will you bow and confess with great despair because the one who stands in front of you is your judge? Folks, the Lord Jesus gave his life for you. He emptied himself for you. He laid aside majesty for you. He took on human form for you. He died for you. He died on a cross for you, taking your sin for you, your rejection of God. He paid the punishment that you deserve. Come to him. Confess him. Receive forgiveness. And know what it is to live, to have joy, to have peace, to have assurance that your life is just not a treadmill leading to an annihilation, but no, your life is moving forward to be part of the heavenly throng who will worship at the King of kings and the Lord of lords in a world that has been made new. Folks, if that is true, how we live our lives matters. What our outlook on life matters. If we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are called to live lives that are shaped by that and reflect that. So we need to have his mindset. And what was his mindset? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Folks, our admiration for Jesus is truly expressed and truly proclaimed in our imitation of him imitation of him so here are a few thoughts regarding having the mind of christ and what it means and what it could mean for us and what things we may and should consider as people who imitate him our high and humble king jesus first thing is this i want us to realize and know this that gospel people are not entitled people one of our values as cornerstone church is that we are marked by grace We are who we are because of the grace of God. We recognize that we don't deserve anything apart from the judgments of God, but Jesus takes that for us. He lays aside his his entitlements for us. 
so that we could be saved and receive the blessings of God the Father to become his children. We don't deserve any of that, but Jesus laid that aside for us. See, folks, an entitled attitude is the enemy to humility. See, it puts you in a situation where you are, you and your needs are central. So when you've had enough of serving or you don't want to anymore, you either call upon real entitlement or you pull the ticket of our culture at the moment, which is, I deserve better than this, so I'm stopping now. Folks, entitlement kills humility. Our entitlement, what we deserve, the position that we should have is the judgment of God. But Jesus has taken that for us. Let's imitate him and serve other people. Let us look to the interests of others before we look to the interests of ourselves. Gospel people are not entitled people. Gospel people seek to be humble. And I want to underline this. Not talk about being humble, but seek to be humble. It's interesting when people start saying that they're humble... For me, it's sort of points that you're probably not when you want other people to think that you are. See, how do we do this? How do we seek to be humble? Serve others. Serve others for their interests and serve them with no selfish ambition or conceit whatsoever. See, it's interesting about this passage. It's really clear. The first few verses before this beautiful passage of the Lord Jesus, it's clear. And then we get this wonderful example of what that means and what that looks like. Now, folks, hum humility has nothing to do with personality. Nothing to do with it. But it has everything to do with posture of heart and actions. Please don't fall into the trap that those people who are more extroverted and more outgoing and are the life and soul of the party are the arrogant ones and those that are quiet are the humble ones. We totally misunderstand what humility is, if that's what our barometer of it is. No, it is everything to do with the posture of heart and everything to do with how we function from that heart. See, uh, what do I get out of this? Or I've got to do what's best for me. Attitude won't be present with humble people. See, the fight in seeking to being humble isn't what is best for me. The fight is denying self. That's the fight. It's what's best for others. What are, what's the interest of others? It's asking our question, am I doing this for my glory, for my gain? Or am I genuinely seeking to do or engage or to love for the sake of others? Am I imitating Christ? Gospel people seek to be humble. Gospel people humbly submit to the will of God. Folks, we see there, Jesus was obedient to the Father, even unto death. That's what it says. Look, if we aren't willingly, if we aren't willing to humbly submit to God's calling, God's leading, and his word with our whole lives, we won't be able to humbly serve others. See, Jesus was able to humbly serve us because he humbly served his father. He humbly walked in obedience to his father. Folks, if you want to be a humble person, but you reject elements of God's word, 
If you want to be a humble person, but you're like, the church isn't for me. If you want to be a humble person and you're not looking to give and to, to give of what you've got to the glory of God, whether that's finances or time or resources, and folks, quite frankly, it should be all three. If we're not willing to walk in light of the commandments, we're not willing to build relationship with the Lord Jesus. If we're not willing to say, Lord, I surrender and you are, are the captain of my soul, the captain of my life, we will never be able to truly live in humility and save other people like Christ did. See, gospel people humbly submit to the will of God that leads to humbly saving others. Gospel people save others. My question is, do you save others? Do you save them? And folks, there are a myriad of different ways on how we can do that. But my question is, do you save others? Or is your mindset, how are people saving me? Or is your mindset, nobody saves me? Another way of thinking is, do you care for others? Folks, after a brutal year, at the end of this year, is your mindset still, nobody cares for me? Nobody has cared for me. Because if it is, folks, come, confess, repent, and open your eyes to see how you can care and save for others. Gospel people save others. Gospel people share in the sufferings of Jesus. See, we see that with the with the with the, um, the apostle Paul. We'll see this right throughout. That actually, the 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 the. The thinking and serving others, the, the stepping into obedience with the Father, the imitating of Jesus is imitating him in his humility, even unto death. That denying of self, dying to self. And folks, living for the Lord Jesus and for the good of others will bring opposition. Will bring opposition. We've, we, we, we read that at the end of, of, of chapter 1. When we live lives worthy of the gospel, it will bring and does bring opposition. Folks, are we seeking in our admiration of Jesus to imitate him in such that we share in his sufferings? Because gospel people share in the sufferings of Jesus. Gospel people one day will share in the exaltation of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? That one day, we, we, where we are, we receive all the richest blessings of what it is to be in Christ Jesus, but we are the children of God. And that we will enjoy the glory. We will experience the glory. We will be exalted as Jesus is exalted, as those that he has paid a price for, as the children of the Father. We have something wonderful to look forward to because of Jesus's humility. And folks, gospel people imitate Jesus and have the same attitude as him. Humility. Humility. Do you admire Jesus? And if so, do you imitate him? How does Jesus' humility motivate you to become a better servant of others? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Folks, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is that? He humbled himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who laid aside his majesty, came empty-handed and gave up everything for me, suffered at the hands of those he had created. He took all my sin and all my shame and he died and he rose again. And now in heaven he reigns over heaven and earth and he ex is exalted. I want to worship him. I want to live for him. I admire him and I want to imitate him. I want his mind. I want his attitude. I want to be selfless. I want to live for the glory of God and serve other brothers and sisters in Christ and those who I come in contact. Father, make that the prayer of the people of Cornerstone Church Liverpool. Make that the prayer of the churches of the Cornerstone Collective. Make that our prayer this morning. By your spirit, help us to have the mind of Jesus. Help us to humble ourselves for the glory of God the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.